today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to give you an update on what's happening uh, with the research about COVID-19. We're, as we mentioned earlier in the program, I'm certainly learning more and more about uh, the virus each and every day. And uh, with that knowledge, of course, comes uh, the possibility of finding a better treatment for it, for those who contract the virus, but also, of course, to find a vaccine. And uh, here's the latest on what's going on. It can be given in such a fashion that it diffuses very quickly into the body, all through the body, and you might be able to protect, uh, prevent infection immediately. Encouraging news to be sure, but where are we on this? And what about things like mass vaccinations and inoculations? And what about treatment of the people that still have it? Uh, I want to bring uh, Dr. Savrinus Murthy into the conversation, clinical associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at BC Children's Hospital. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. No problem. Good morning. How are we doing with the, the research on this? And as, as we've been telling our listeners, I mean, uh, researchers, of course, are really kind of working, I guess, in two parallel paths here. One, to find a vaccine, most certainly, but also to treat this uh, this virus as uh, for the people that have contracted it. Uh, we're smarter now than we were four or five months ago, aren't we? Yeah, no question. I think we've learned quite a bit about what this virus does and how we can better manage it in, in general. And so both of those tasks, how to prevent it and how to treat it, um, we're learning quite a bit about it. The, the the importance and in, in the, the relationship between antibodies and treatment and, and vaccines uh, has p- been part of the conversation right from the get-go. We've talked to people that, that have had the disease and, and survived it, thankfully. Uh, Chris Cuomo from CNN comes to mind, of course, the guy that does the uh, one of the evening shows on CNN, uh, who was broadcasting from home and, and told us daily about how this was impacting on him. But the antibodies uh, that he developed and that anybody who develops the vaccine were told play a key role in, in, the, in the research that's going on. How does that work, Doctor? Sure. So antibodies are, are proteins that live in your blood that protect you against getting infections. So we think they do. Um, so we know that people who get infected develop antibodies. Um, to that infection. And so the, the question was and remains, I guess, whether those antibodies are completely protective of you getting infection again. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, ha- you can have antibodies, but we weren't sure whether or not you were protected if you had those antibodies um, from getting a repeat infection. Um, we may have some more information on that that says that having some antibodies may protect you, which is good. Um, there was a study done on a fishing boat where um, they did some tests both before and after the fishing boat, and there was a large exposure on the fishing boat, and everyone else on the fishing boat got infected, besides the three people who had antibodies, and so people had the infection beforehand. And those three people did not get sick and did not get a new infection. Um, And so that's encouraging to tell us that um, having antibodies may be protective. How long did those protective antibodies stay around? I mean, because that seemed to be one of the key questions. I mean, some people yeah, that, that were being tested, I guess, shortly after they were cured, uh, said, yeah, we've, there's certainly antibodies. And some actually donated them, I guess, for some of the research. Uh, but there's some stories also, doctor, not too long after that, that, well, they looked at those same people a couple of months later and they couldn't find the antibodies. Uh, is, is, is that unique to this virus? Uh, not necessarily. Um, and so, yes, you're right, that the duration of the protection is a crucial thing. Um, so whether it's just a few months or whether it's a lifetime, um, we can't definitively say yes, obviously, because we'll have to wait a long time to see how long that lasts. It's not unique to this infection. Lots of infections have waning immunity as time goes on, whether that's antibodies or other types of immune reactions to an infection. And so we can't say yes what the duration is. I'm hopeful 
that the duration lasts at least for a long time, um, but we obviously don't know that. Remember, there's lots of ways our immune system reacts to infections, and antibodies are only one of the ways. Um, and so hopefully, even if our antibodies wane, we have other sources of immunity to that infection. But only time will tell that. When we do make that determination, is that going to be a factor in, in how often we would have to be inoculated? I mean, uh, you know, is it going to be a one shot and you're good for the rest of your life? Or is it going to have to be you know, once a year, like we do flu vaccines, things of that nature? That's, that's yeah, to be determined. But I would think that's going to be a factor, isn't it? That's going to be a huge factor. And so obviously getting any vaccine for any protection is going to be important in the short term. But whether or not that lasts and we need repeated inoculations over time um, is an important question. So remember, we do the flu vaccine every year, not because our immunity wanes that much, but because there's different flu viruses floating around. Um, but other vaccines we get repeatedly or at least somewhat repeatedly. You remember your tetanus shot, you always get a booster every now and then to make sure you're, yep. you're up to date and have full immunity. Um, it could be something like that, where every five or ten years we get a repeated shot. We don't know yet how long our natural or our artificial immunity will last from the vaccine. Um, and so hopefully as time goes on, we start to figure that out and we start to see um, whether or not we get a repeated infection. Talk to us a little bit about the the vaccine that that we're searching for right now, Doctor. And we know that there's research going on all over the world now. The story from Russia last week from Putin that they've already got theirs. And I don't know if anybody gave any credibility to that. But we're told that there's going to be a number of vaccines that are going to be developed. I guess questions about efficacy come into mind here, uh, what they're going to do. Where Where is the research on that, and why are they so divergent? I mean, the one at Oxford, I guess, is the one they say seems to be the furthest along at this stage. But but what are we anticipating to see when they finally say, I think we've got this, that eureka moment? So, yeah, you're right, that there's dozens of different vaccine candidates in different phases of testing right now. Some are very early while three or four are in phase three trials, which is what we look for to see if they are both safe and effective. Um, and that's being tested across tens of thousands of people in the United States and Brazil and India and various other parts of the world. But they have to be tested in sort of high burden places where there's lots of infections happening so that they can get an answer reasonably quickly. And so what's going to happen is that once um, they determine, based on their statistics and the number of people who didn't get infected when they expected them to get infected, based on the number of infections happening in that population, they can say, okay, this is effective and it is safe. At that point, they'll submit it to, to regulators. And so Health Canada in Canada, the FDA in the United States, who will determine whether that's enough data to see that it should be given to the population. And then at the same time, they'll manufacture quite a few number of doses um, to see if they can uh, vaccinate as many people around the world as possible. And then obviously... It's Part of that... Te- Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. I'll just finish it. It's the cost of getting a, a vaccine out to millions and millions of people and billions of billions of people, obviously, um, and then trying to disseminate it and distribute it in an equitable and ethical way. At the same time, another vaccine might be announced at the same time from a different group who says that their vaccine is safe, and that will similarly go through the same processes. And then um, individuals or health systems can make choices about which one should be used based on the data that's available. And there's lots of processes to approve and to basically say which one's better than another.
I know that there is some rush. Obviously, there is because of the the consequences that we've seen with COVID nineteen. But this is a painstakingly long process, isn't it, Doctor? I mean, when you talk about is it effective, I guess you know part B to that question is what are the long term side effects, if any? You know, and and, and that has to be uh, something that has to be considered in the meantime too. Yeah, and so safety is crucial. And so, like any vaccine study, um, safety is going to be very carefully monitored in all of these studies to make sure that. There's no side effects that are surprising or, or concerning. Um, and the regulators will only approve something if it meets those thresholds for safety. Um, and getting people to be convinced that this isn't a, a good thing to do is a main part of the battle. As I'm sure you know, there is a, a reasonably sizable um, number of people who think that vaccinations are not appropriate. And convincing everybody that this vaccine will work is going to be all of our jobs once we have the data in front of us. Um, and so safety is absolutely important. And that's why I'm so skeptical of the Russian efforts right now, um, given that they didn't go through that safety monitoring and safety study to make sure that what they're giving to the population is appropriate. Yeah, sadly, and we'd hate to think that uh, there's going to be some dire circumstances as a result. We can only hope for the best in that situation. Where do you begin in a situation like this, Doctor, to develop a, a vaccine or treatment for this? COVID-19 is not the first coronavirus, of course, that we've had to deal with. Uh, have the other ones been helpful in giving us a baseline to know where to go? So, yeah, they have. Um, so we know a lot about the coronavirus based on sort of uh, all those prior experiences. and It has a a protein on it that's a good target for a vaccine for our bodies to react against. And so scientists took that and took blood specimens from um, patients who had been infected and sort of mapped out what the antibodies looked like um, and then developed the vaccine as quickly as possible in various different parts of the world and various different scientists. Um, And they'll all land on somewhat different approaches because there's different ways of doing it, Um, but they all might be effective. It's, it's been an unprecedented display of science. This typically takes 10 years to work through. But if everybody works very hard at the same thing, um, we can speed up that timeline significantly, evidently. You just reminded me of a conversation I had a couple of months ago with uh, one of your fellow researchers uh, here in eastern Canada. <laughs> and I said, how can you do this? Uh, you know, because, I mean, we're still looking for a vaccine for AIDS, for instance. I mean, they, they thought they had one a few years ago, and it turned out to, to have some rather dire consequences. So that's not happening. But we do have treatment for AIDS now. And they said, how, I, in the space of a few short months, and he just laughed and said, well, finally, the government's giving us the money that we need for, to do this research. It's it's always been, I guess, coming out in drip, drip, drip fashion. But I think even governments all over the world now, doctors, seem to understand the, the, the urgency that's on here. And they're, they're throwing money at the problem, which is good news for all of us, I guess. Yeah, no question. I think, obviously, this is affecting everybody. And so um, the money spent here for this is going to be money well, money well spent um, in the long term. And I guess for next time, and there may or may not be a next time in the future, making sure we have all of that infrastructure in place well in advance and so that we can be more prepared. Um, would be great. What about treatment? Can we spend a couple of minutes, if we could, Doctor, talking about those who do contract the virus? Uh, more and more people are surviving, which is great news, uh, but the treatment is different. I mean, as we more, learn more about this, about what we actually do in that hospital environment, for instance, uh, for people that are, are having severe reactions to it. Yeah, no, we're learning more and more about that. Obviously, there's been tens of thousands of patients around the world. And so we've learned quite a bit about what the disease does to people and what we can do to treat them better. Um, unfortunately, we only have one sort of large-scale randomized trial that shows something is effective, and it's a simple molecule like a steroid 
um, that's been given in hospitals for, for decades has been shown in most patients to be very useful to improve your chance of leaving the hospital happily. Um, but people are working on a variety of different treatments. Some repurposed medications, um, say old medications that were used for something else. The hydroxychloroquine example comes up there. Um, and looking at new medications that are targeted specifically at this coronavirus that have been developed over the past few weeks and months. Um, so the old medications don't seem to be that effective. Hydroxychloroquine is not effective um, at pre- preventing or treating disease. Um, and some of the newer ones are showing some promise, but we're waiting for some final data to say that it's actually going to be useful. Um, I think, in general, just good supportive care in a hospital where they're not stressed and don't have thousands of patients coming into their door is probably the best thing that we can do. And so preventing people from getting infected in the first place so that we can limit our hospital's ability, so we can have hospitals be able to treat patients effectively is super important right now. As someone who's got an eye on this and, and is you know, on the lead here with the research that's going on, with the great work that you're doing out in, in British Columbia at the Children's Hospital there, how concerned are you about the second wave that they keep talking about, the anticipation of a second wave sometime in, in the fall? Yeah, it's, it's likely to happen, um, I think, based on natural epidemiology as we sort of we expose ourselves and the amount of immunity that's floating around um, in the community right now. There will likely be some upticks or surges in case counts across different parts of the country. Um, and the question is whether or not we have the capacity to detect them and then stamp them out. Um, and so and that doesn't necessarily mean wide-scale lockdowns like happened in March and April, but it might mean sort of small, targeted, and limited um, lockdowns to make sure that any any outbreak is rapidly addressed. And I think that's going to be a test of our public health system to make sure it has the capacity to do that, particularly with schools and workplaces starting to reopen. And and that, well, the perfect storm that some people are anticipating of the flu season plus a second wave of COVID. Uh, I thought it was instructive. I saw the story about what happened in Australia. Of course, they're just coming out of their winter uh, as we're heading into ours. Uh, and they've already had that, that double-headed monster. And uh, I found it interesting you know, that they showed some of the statistics uh, COVID still was, was ravaging, and the, the numbers were still up in, in Australia, uh, but the flu was not as bad as they thought it was. And I, I'm, I'm anticipating, I wanted to get your read on this, is it because the precautions that we take, masking, social distancing, et cetera, for COVID, obviously are going to be effective against a flu bug too? Yeah, no question. And so if we're protecting ourselves from coronavirus, protecting ourselves from influenza by limiting our social activities and connections with others. That being said, as we reopen, uh, a reminder to all your listeners that the flu vaccine is going to be so useful over these next few months to make sure that we limit um, the cough and colds that would lead to more testings and lead to more staying at homes and things like that. If we can prevent some of those with the vaccine in the population, that's going to help us manage this coronavirus season um, greatly. When should we start considering that to, to, to get the flu vaccine for this com- upcoming season? I, th- I think it'll be out in October, November, okay. so in the next month or two. Um, it should be uh, out and appropriate for the expected flu circulating strains this winter. And so just like any year, um, getting your flu shot is um, going to be very important. 
We uh, just having the discussion. I, I guess you actually could characterize it as a debate here in Ontario about masking in schools and things of this nature. As, as kids head back, I know that the, there was a bit of a blip in British Columbia when the kids started back to school a couple of weeks ago, and, and some concern raised about that, uh, which I think underscores the importance of, of wearing masks. And a couple of the school boards we've just talked to uh, in the last week have made masks mandatory for kindergarten right through to grade 12 uh, in in some of those jurisdictions. Uh, I'd love to see a province-wide mandate like that. I don't think that's going to happen from a political standpoint anyway, but it's it's good advice, I think, that boards should consider uh, about trying to stop the spread, and, and masking is going to be a key part of that. Yeah, uh, like the mask situation is that like we know masks protect people from getting infected and protect people from giving infection. Um, and so in that context, um, especially in closed situations with closed rooms for extended periods, wearing masks um, would help prevent um, the spread. And so I can't get into the specifics of the policies in Ontario, and so I'll leave that for Ontario. No, I don't want to drag you into the political weeds here. I just, from a, a public health standpoint, it makes all kinds of sense, and and I just I'm hoping that more jurisdictions are going to adhere to that. I mean, here in Hamilton, for instance, and I think in London now too, they have a mandatory masking and public transit and things of that nature, and that that only makes sense as we go through this. Because uh, I guess the takeaway here, doctor, is that the virus is not going away anytime soon, so we better get used to to doing these defensive things that we're doing now. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it, this will be here for a period of time going forward. And even when that announcement, that Eureka moment you commented on earlier about a vaccine being safe and effective, um, getting it to a place where we don't have to worry about this virus anymore and we're back to the lives we had before this, this pandemic, that'll take an extended period of time after that because just because we have a vaccine doesn't mean we have global protection. Doctor, thank you so much for the time today. Great to get your perspective on this. Uh, stay well, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Take care. Have a good day. Take care. Uh, Dr. Serenivus Murthy from uh, University uh, British Columbia, BC Children's Hospital, doing some great work out on the West Coast. By the way, one quick thing about masking. Uh, if you're using the, uh, the disposable masks that I see a lot of people using, you know, the blue ones uh, that have the ribs on them, uh, they are disposable. You use them, and then you're supposed to throw them out. Uh, Clip the strings on them when you throw them out, okay? Because we're having the same problem. I just had this discussion last night, uh, as we do with uh, those those plastic things, you know, that keep cans together, you know, the six packs and things of that nature. You're always supposed to cut those open so that wildlife, of course, won't get caught up in those and, and could die as a result. Uh, they're concerned now because they've actually shown some pictures uh, in in some of the rural areas and outlying areas of uh, of wildlife that have they, they've got these masks stuck to them. Uh, because they end up in landfill, and who knows what's going to happen after that. So just a, a quick thing. Uh, when you take it off, when you get to dispose of it, uh, clip the string so you're not causing any dam- any uh, harm or damage to to wildlife. Okay? Word to the wise here. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.